Dear friends in Christ, we read from the Word of God this morning in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah, chapter 7, the final four verses of his book. The nations will see and be ashamed of their lack of strength. They will place their hand over their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick up dust like a snake, like the things that creep on the earth. They will come from their hiding places, shaking with fear. They will come trembling to the Lord our God, and they will be afraid in your presence. Who is a God like you, who forgives guilt, and who passes over the rebellion of the survivors from his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever. He delights in showing mercy. He will have compassion on us again. He will overcome our guilty deeds. You will throw all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, as you swore to our fathers from days of old. This is the word of our Lord. This morning we consider God's singular focus and work through Jesus Christ, our Savior. May the Holy Spirit bless our meditation of that word. Think of your favorite movie or book. It's not a far assumption to think that your favorite movie or book has to do with the plot or some type of character in that book. When I think of the books that I love the most, the movies that I've enjoyed the most, it usually has to do with the way the story unfolds and the way the characters develop throughout it. Great stories and great films are memorable to us. Great stories have a struggle oftentimes between good and evil, something that we can connect with, with what we experience in our lives, what we know to be true. We have the classic thoughts of the protagonist and the antagonist. But really unique stories, the ones that are really memorable, usually have some type of conflict even within the main character, even within the protagonist, the hero of the story, we usually get a little taste of good and evil, strength and struggle. And those are the ones that really do stand out. One phrase that depicts this is duplicity. Duplicity, while sounding like a complicated word, really isn't all that complicated. It simply means to have two sides, two elements to oneself. Sometimes we think about that as sort of being double-minded in an individual. And when somebody is duplicitous in that way, when there's two sides, it can be difficult to get a read on who they are. Now that might work really well for a book or a movie as we are enamored in the struggle to understand the character and to follow their path. But when it's somebody who's directly interacting in our lives and affecting us, we don't want somebody who is duplicitous. We want someone who's reliable, someone that we know and can trust. To many, God is duplicitous. And to a larger extent, the Bible itself. The oversimplified argument says that God is too double-minded, too contradictory, too unpredictable. Not someone we can rely on. Some of the thoughts behind this are that, well, God's all loving, but he allows bad things to happen. And God is powerful, 
but he uses that power to judge sin. God is patient, yet he judges and condemns. God cares about people, yet he feels so distant in our lives. The end of Micah's prophecy here strikes a similar chord with us. Is God too duplicitous, too double-minded for us to trust in? There's a very clear division in our text as Micah wraps up his prophecy. Verses 16 and 17 speak of the nations being judged quite harshly, actually. They will lick the dust. They will hide. They will be afraid of the Lord. Verses 18 and 20 are completely different. God forgives. God lets go of anger and shows mercy. God takes sin away, never to be found again. How do we account for such a difference? Furthermore, how do we have a relationship with God with such differences present? Is there too much duplicity in God? We might see it in other areas of the Bible too. You don't have to look very far to see these two sides. Jesus himself proclaimed in his ministry, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I will separate husbands and wives sons and fathers, daughters and mothers. Yet Jesus was also called in Scripture the Prince of Peace. Jesus' one act of dying on the cross for the sins of the world unite all people under him by faith. The Bible says that that sacrifice was given once for all. It's truly unifying. To the casual observer, Maybe even to us as lifelong Christians at times, we look at such a difference, such a contrast, and we're puzzled as to what the meaning is. Well, as with most things in life, challenging as they may be, there's an answer. There's a reason. Sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper to find it, though. Sometimes God wants us to be a bit more intentional in our faith, in our study of the Word, to see the solution to the puzzle. It's easy to see a duplicitous paradox when we read just the end of Micah's prophecy or if we read just one passage that Jesus spoke or one thing that God did. It's easy to point at that and say, look, an unreliable God. You foolish Christians, why would you believe such a thing? Or maybe in my own mind, wanting to follow Christ, I think, can I really base so much of my life around what he says he's done for me? Seems so unreliable. It's easy to do that when you look at the surface, when you pick out one passage, when you isolate it from its context. But in Micah's message here, if we consider the end of this prophecy in light of his whole book, it really does make perfect sense. And if we extend it out from there and look at it in light of the rest of the Old Testament or the rest of the Bible in general, we see that God makes a lot of sense. As we seek to understand for ourselves this morning what God is getting at here in these verses, let us look at, the, look at it from the perspective of someone who's struggling with it, maybe even us, as we approach these words from God. For those that may think that God is too unreliable, too double-minded, too duplicitous because of these things, three arguments really come to the surface. Number one, God shows favoritism. Number two, God is unfair. Number three, God only focuses on what you do.
here in our text, as we look at number one, that God shows favoritism, we see that in Micah here, he condemns the nations of the earth. When this is referred to in the Old Testament, it's talking about the Gentiles, the nations of the world that were outside of God's chosen nation of Israel. But let's keep in mind the context here. Even at this time, as Mike is writing, God's own people are divided. The kingdom has divided into the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. Now, Micah was a prophet that was sent originally to the two southern tribes of Judah, and he speaks directly to them. You see that come out at the end when he talks about Jacob and Abraham. Those are phrases referring to God's people. But it's not uncommon for any prophet, let alone Micah, for his words to be applied to all people. Certainly all people can see a message through that. But many people claim here, well, look, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the Bible that wants to look at the Gentiles with disdain, that wants to hold the other nations of the earth down while he lifts his own people, Israel, up. What an unfair and unloving God. I mean, from just a basic standpoint of right and wrong, how can we follow and worship someone who appears to show such favoritism? always lifting his people up, separating them from the rest of the dirt and mire of the earth and leaving the rest of the world to fend for itself. Now we realize in these verses, God speaks directly to the nations. But if you look at Micah's prophecy, you see he did not exclude his own people. In fact, when God spoke to Judah through his prophet, he was harshest. Consider in chapter 3, the groundwork that's already been laid by Micah, speaking to God's people first before dealing with the nations. Micah writes there, I, on the other hand, am full of power from the Spirit of the Lord, full of judgment and strength to declare Jacob's sinful rebellion and Israel's sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob. Listen attentively, you leaders of the house of Israel, you who have contempt for justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders render verdicts for a bribe. Her priests issue rulings for a payoff. Her prophets foretell the future for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, the Lord is in our midst, isn't he? Disaster will not come upon us. What a hammer blow from God's prophet to God's people. And when you see this, what was happening at this time among God's people, perversion of justice, bribery, pride, greed, it's clear that God was not condemning the innocent. God was not just focusing on the nations of the world. God held his own people accountable most. He expected more of them. He expected them to be better, to be held to a higher standard because they knew his word. They had his promises. They were to be lights to the world. But they failed. God's goal in pointing out this sin and unbelief to his own people was to bring them back to repentance. Another way of thinking about being brought back to repentance is to remember what you're forsaking. God is trying to wake up his people and say, this is what you're turning your back on with your actions. This is what you will bring upon yourself. This was the context in which Micah spoke, and it's the exact opposite of God playing favorites. 
God's message was to all people, first of all, to his own chosen people, but also to the nations of the earth. And as we come to the end of Micah's prophecy and he speaks to the nations of the earth, the warning is the same. Do not forsake what you have in your Savior Jesus Christ, or you will lick the dust. You will be forsaken. The second argument about God's duplicity is that he's unfair when evaluating our actions. So take the nations of the earth out of the picture. Whether it's Jew or Gentile, who really cares? Let's look at humanity in general. Is God right to be so critical of our lives? Is God right to analyze so deeply? If God truly forgives, if he's truly a merciful God, why doesn't he just let things go? Seems like he's really got a grudge against his people. What's so wrong in how a person chooses to live their life, even if it's not what God says they should do? Shouldn't God just be loving? These are the kind of thoughts that are associated with this second argument that God is unfair when he evaluates my life. Now we think of double-mindedness or duplicity when we bring God's attributes onto the scene. This morning, for our, the theme of our service, we're focusing on Christ's power as God through his resurrection. So how does this work then? With God evaluating our lives, what happens when we see more of the nature of God and how he handles situations in life? He hates sin. God is angry at unbelief. God judges and condemns but supposedly it's wrong for me to do those things? Why is it okay for God, but not for me? Well, there's a lot that we could look at in trying to answer that question, but I'd like to bring it down to one thought for you. Cause. The word cause, the concept of cause, is an incredibly valuable piece of information when asking this question. First of all, let's look at it from our perspective. Good and bad things happen in life because of something. There's a cause. Things don't just happen randomly. Things are not just labeled righteous and evil in an arbitrary way. There's a reason for it. There's a cause. Imagine what a chaotic life would be if right and wrong was just some random thing. and We had no way of telling the difference between the two, and yet God still held us accountable. That would truly be unfair. But God reminds us, there's always a cause to what he does in our lives. Consider these kinds of examples when it comes to cause. Maybe the good things of life. We give gifts every day. Probably not. Special days, holidays, birthdays. There's a reason for the gift. Promotions in your job. Good things that happen. A raise. Usually not just poof out of the air, but because you've done a good job because you've shown yourself ready to step on to the next level. Even things like compliments usually come because of something that was done. There's a cause involved. Happens in the negative too. Discipline, chastisement occurs when something has been done wrong. Negative feelings spring up in my heart, in my life, when I allow a bitter root to grow. There's a cause. Even something like a negative thought like loneliness, that's not really necessarily our responsibility or we're not necessarily the cause of that. But when people are lonely, there is a cause, namely not having people in your life. Imagine as a parent, 
teaching and training your child and simply punishing or blessing at random times for random reasons. Consider the turmoil this would put your child in. They would have no sense of right or wrong. They wouldn't know how to function. They wouldn't know how to cope. They wouldn't know what expectations are. They could have really no relationship with you if things were just random and chaotic and good and bad for no reason. Some people think that way about God. God, our Heavenly Father. Some people think that's the type of Father He is. Oh, maybe good today, maybe bad tomorrow. Who knows? Who's to say? But God says there's always a cause to His actions. And we should think about what is that cause? Micah makes it clear. The cause of the people's distress before God was their blatant violation of His law and justice didn't matter. Jew, Gentile, Judah, Israel, Samaria, any other nation, didn't matter. What mattered was that God's justice had been violated and justice does not change depending on who it is. So cause reminds us to look at our responsibility when we see and experience the injustices of sin in the world. Solomon stated it clearly in his poetic book of Ecclesiastes, he said, Surely there is no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. That means no matter who we are, no matter how good we think of ourselves, we have contributed to the bad things in life as well. Even the Bible says it so plainly, the youngest child can understand the wages of sin is death. We know that to be true because God says it, but we also know it to be true because we've lived it in our lives. We've seen it and felt it and experienced it. So we must understand we bear responsibility in the cause. But what about God? What about his anger? What about his judgment? What about his condemnation? Well, again, we think of cause, but in a different way. God's actions are in response to sin, not because of it. Sin is not held over God. Remember what Solomon said, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth. God is above sin. God is truly righteous and holy. And sometimes we struggle with that image of God and we retaliate against it because it is so hard for us to accept. We've never experienced what God is. We don't always like that. Micah wrote earlier about God's will. This is God right here. In chapter 6, verse 8, Micah said, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. God's way is clear. God does not deviate from his path. God's cause is in response to sin, and he addresses that in our lives. But even more than that, in response to that sin, God does not just willingly hand us over to Satan. God does not just say, okay, you transgressed, you fell off the path, you did not walk with humility and kindness, therefore you are done. God fights for you. God holds to justice and yet makes a way forward whereby you can be forgiven. God warns and judges not to be unfair, but to lead you to repentance to show you what that way is. And so we come to the final argument, number three, that God is double-minded because he only looks at us. 
we come to this final point, but as we've gotten here, it's really built on the first two points, and points one and two both led us to conclude in one way of what God's leading us to, repentance. God treats all people the same. He doesn't show favoritism because his, his point is to lead people to repent. God treats us fairly, understands the cause of our actions, responds to the devastating effects of sin to lead people to repentance. And point three is all about this. It builds off of those first two ones. Point three is that God leads to repentance so that you would know you're forgiven. It may feel like God is too preoccupied with what humanity does, but that's like thinking that the tree in my front yard is the same as the forest in the wilderness. We see things that God highlights in his, his word. We see individual passages and thoughts that direct at our lives and make us think about what we've been doing. But that is one minor piece of the whole nature of God. One tree, if you will, in the forest of his work. The little attention that God does put on our actions and inactions is simply to direct us to see more clearly what he has done for us. You see how God leads us from what we've done to hope more fully in what he has done. That's what God wants you to see. He wants you to see past the pain and effect of sin to what he has accomplished. What message does Micah leave the people of the world with? Even the nations of the world. Who is a God like you who forgives guilt? who passes over rebellion, who does not hold on to anger forever, who delights in showing mercy, who has compassion again, who overcomes our guilt, who throws our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God wants you to see when you get past the prism of sin and unrighteousness in the world around us. He'll point it out to get you on that path of repentance. But he wants to lead you to repent so that you would know more fully the great depths of his love that has brought your forgiveness. God does not want you to be the center of your own existence. His word is not given to you so that you focus only on the minor defects and issues that you have going on in your life. The complete goal, the whole picture, is to see his love for you in Christ. Truly, as Micah remarked, what kind of a God is like that? Certainly nothing that the world has seen before. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What's our theme for today? The glory of Christ's resurrection. And Paul says, by faith, you will share in that glory. And it's not even comparable to the sufferings that you go through today. Why is that? Is that because the trials of life hold us down and cause us to harbor a grudge against God and to start saying that he's unfair and he's too overarching in my life and he doesn't really care about me and he treats people differently? Is that what's causing us to get past the sufferings of the world? No, it's sharing in the glory of our Savior by faith. And faith is trusting in God completely. And if repentance starts me off on that process and tells me, correct what you've done wrong. Confess before God. 
receive forgiveness in Christ? Well, certainly that is worth having. Peter wrote in his letter, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is the summary of the prophecy of Micah. Not just in these verses, but in the entire book. The Lord is patient with you to lead you to repentance. And this really is the greatest testament to God's power. It's not about the empty tomb. It's not about the dazzling angels in white array. It's not about the wounds in the hands and the resurrection appearances. The testament of Christ's power is the fact that he cares enough about you to come down to your life to display that power and to share it with you, that you would be a partaker of that life, that you would have the same life after this life has ended. The story of Scripture is not treasured because of its rich plot or its dynamic characters or the interaction of the story or the way that it makes us feel as it progresses. That's not why Scripture is endearing. Scripture is endearing because it connects us to Jesus to that miraculous power of the resurrection of our Savior and how he used that to redeem our lives from sin. This truth goes above storyline, plot, character development, and even more than that, it's not just some thought in our minds. It's not just some abstract thing as we read a story. But God's saying he's done this for each and every one of you. Therefore, as Christians, we embrace Christ. We know the story. We believe it. We follow it. And we live it. The power of Christ's resurrection in our lives is to lead us to repentance. And the blessed fruit of that work of our Savior is to be share, partakers and sharers of his glory. To the honor of his name. May that be the course of our faith and our lives. Amen. Please rise.